Not all podcasters are created equal. This is the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. It's summertime. Throughout much of the country, heat and humidity are starting to become the norm. When you add that to a world navigating through a pandemic and young athletes anxious to start up organized sports again, those of us in sports medicine are on high alert for a potential surge in heat-related illnesses. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a world-renowned expert in the area of heat illness and how that relates to athletics. Grab your cold beverage of choice, sit back, relax, and listen in, as I'm certain there will be extremely valuable information to be had for anyone who deals with young athletes. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and you are listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Doug Cassa. He is the CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute and is a professor of kinesiology at the University of Connecticut. He is the editor of numerous books and has published almost 300 peer review articles and book chapters and has presented over 500 times around the world on the topic of heat-related illness, exertional heat stroke, and maximizing performance in the heat. As an athletic trainer, Dr. Cassa has also successfully treated 325 cases of exertional heat stroke, none of which resulted in death. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's great to have you. You are kind of the renowned expert, and I'm so excited to have you on today. And I think it's best to set the table, so to speak, for this podcast, best to talk about the different types of heat illness that an athlete may experience. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? The things that, you know, the parents and athletes and coaches listening to this would know, like things like heat cramps, things like heat exhaustion, heat syncope. Heat syncope is like when someone faints or gets lightheaded in the heat. Heat exhaustion is the inability to continue exercise in the heat. And then the most serious one is exertional heat stroke. That's the one heat illness that actually could cause an athlete to die. And that's when an athlete gets dangerously hot or hyperthermic. Their body temperature gets so high that it actually starts to kill cells in your body if you stay too hot for too long. And that's what we're going to focus on a lot today with the talk, because that is the thing that we're really trying to avoid happening to an athlete. I know you've had your own personal experience with exertional heat stroke in your younger years. I'm sure that was a catalyst of sorts for your career interest. Can you share that experience with our listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. Back in 1985, August 8th, 1985, I was running a 10K race on the track at the Empire State Games in New York. So that was kind of a summer Olympic festival they had in New York. And it was really the pinnacle of for a high school athlete where I was growing up to, to, to make the Empire State Games because there was eight regions in New York State. I was part of the Long Island region and it was my dream to make this festival and to earn the blue jacket and I'd always wanted to do it. I tried out after eighth grade, didn't make it. After ninth grade, didn't make it. Tenth grade, didn't make it. And my last chance after 11th grade, the, only the top two out of all of Long Island, over 100 high schools that tried to send people to qualify, I, I ended up qualifying to make the finals. And then the finals in August on the very final lap, 25 laps, I collapsed with 200 meters to go. And I was in metal contention, got back up with a, and with eight, 50, 60, 70 meters to go, I collapsed again. And I was unconscious for the next seven hours, having suffered an exertional heat stroke. That's almost exactly 35 years ago now. And from 
that moment till now, that's from a professional standpoint, pretty much my single-minded focus. Um, and always do a shout out every time I talk about it, that Ken Scriber was the athletic trainer at the track that day. And he knew it was heat stroke right away and instituted immediate cooling to help save my life. And the EMT, EMS, the emergency room physicians and nurses, they all coordinated care to allow me to survive that day. And I'm always thankful for that. I'm sure you and Ken have a little special bond because of that. Yes. I think your audience will find it interesting. Ken Scriber, you know, I'm a high school athlete when I had my heat stroke and he was an athletic trainer. He was from Ithaca College, but just volunteering in Buffalo that day. And that was 1985. In 2001, I was giving a talk in Los Angeles at the NATA meeting. And I first time in my life, I spoke publicly about my heat stroke. And there was a person in the audience and she heard my heat stroke story. And she had actually been at Ithaca College and heard Kent give that heat stroke story when he was teaching about heat stroke as just a case study. But he had no idea whose life he had saved that day. So in 2001, 16 years after my heat stroke, this lady connected me with the person who saved my life, um, which was a very powerful moment for me. And Kent and I have become very good friends since then, but very fascinating and goosebumps kind of part of the story. When he was teaching about heat stroke from 97 to 2001 range, he would do the case study of the one he treated in 1985 and then hand out articles about heat stroke that I had authored. And he had no idea that the person who authored the papers that he's using to cover the topic of heat stroke is the same person that he's talking about in the case study and the life that he had saved. So it was kind of a, a cool coming together right there. That's crazy. It actually, you know, interesting use of the goosebumps. It actually gave me a little goosebumps just thinking about that, just both back and forth there. That's kind of nuts. You're the CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Corey Stringer, he was an all-pro offensive tackle for the Minnesota Vikings who tragically died due to exertional heat stroke back in 2001 during workouts during training camp. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that it will have been almost 20 years next summer when that happened. I was just starting my chief resident year in pediatrics at that time. Tell us a little bit about what happened with Corey's event and how KSI was founded and how you became involved with it. As you had mentioned, he passed away August 1st, 2001. He had actually had the heat stroke the day before. He was all pro offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings. He grew up in Ohio and went to Ohio State, was an All-American in college. It was the, the first day of practice. They did a normal two-a-day practices in brutally hot conditions in Minnesota. It was like near 100 degrees. And they didn't modify that first day. They did a two-a-day with gear on both practices. He struggled mightily during the end of that first day. Trouble sleeping that night. The next morning in the first practice, he suffers the exertional heat stroke. Unfortunately, he's not aggressively cooled after the heat stroke and he stays hyperthermic for too long and he ends up passing away in the middle of the night the next day. But amazingly, on that August 1st, 2001, we lost Travis Stowers. He was a high school football player in Indianapolis. And we lost Aros Otan, who was a college football player at the University of Florida from heat stroke. And then we lost Corey Stringer. So we lost someone in high school, college, and pro from heat stroke on the same exact day. And I think that was a, a big impetus for changes that you saw afterwards, especially at the NCA, where they were a little faster to react than some of the other organizations. I assisted his widow and his agent for the next eight years during some of the legal pursuits that took place. And when the new commissioner, Commissioner Goodell, took over for the NFL, him and Corey's widow asked if I would be interested in hosting The Lasting Legacy for Corey because they knew my expertise and passion for this topic. And I obviously was I'm very interested in, in trying to form an institute that might be able to enhance the health and safety for athletes, warfighters, and laborers and, and try to create the right information we need, disseminate that information, and then work to advocate for policy changes so that those best practices could actually be implemented into policy. And we know that the Corey Stringer Institute has been very instrumental for those of us in sports medicine as far as kind of giving us the assistance for those policy changes and giving us the framework for those. And so we're, we're certainly extremely 
thankful and in a lot of debt to certainly to, to Corey's widow for being able to start the foundation, obviously for you to be able to continue on with that. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Casa on exertional heat illnesses. Hi, this is Art Maines from ScammerCast.com, where we educate, inform, and protect our elders and those who care for them on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my growing audience of engaged parents and dedicated coaches of young athletes, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. Editing podcasts can be rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control free factor and the gotta get it right the first time factor. And well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the editor core. The editor core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out editorcore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. Editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. You're listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, and today we have been discussing exertional heat illness and the Corey Stringer Institute with Dr. Doug Cassa, the CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute. And he's going to tell us a little bit about some of the work that the Corey Stringer Institute has done over the last decade. We've been honored, as we mentioned or talked about before, we were founded in 2010, April 23rd. And so we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. The Corey Stringer Institute has about 80 employees. We have about 60 volunteers and 20 staff broken into three big divisions. One division is our heat lab, where we do a lot of research related to the medical and physiological aspects of what happens when the body exercises in the heat. So we do a lot of work for the Department of Defense and different athletic populations and laborers. A second division advocates for policy changes. So we work with groups at all different levels of sport, high school, college, pro, and other areas within uh, military laborers and athletics to try to create policy changes based on best practices. And our third division is field-based research, heading out into actual work settings, military bases or athletic settings, and conducting research within the natural settings that people are actually conducting their, their activity or their work. The audience, I think, would have an interest in three projects. One of them is called Tufts. It's Team Up for Sports Safety. That's a $2 million that we raised to visit all 51 states to have policy meetings, convene the key people in each state, work with the state high school athletic associations and sports medicine physicians, athletic directors, athletic trainers, coaches, and get everyone together to enhance health and safety standards. So they meet what best practices are for things related to cardiac issues, head injuries, heat stroke, and such. Second big project is something called Innovate, a play on words with the AT inside of that word. And we're got a $3 million grant to put athletic trainers into traditionally underserved communities that have never had athletic training services in many of the major cities in America. Third is a project called Atlas, which is a project called Athletic Training Location and Services, where we actually keep track real time of each high school in America and if they have athletic trainers or not, and if they do the extent of services that are provided. Because obviously athletic trainers being the healthcare provider that's there on a daily basis for high school athletes, um, they work closely with the team physicians, obviously in the community, but they're actually the ones there on a daily basis. So we advocate at KSI to have athletic trainers 
at every high school in America so that, that we have a licensed medical professional to provide care there. And if, God forbid, there's ever an emergency, you have a medical professional to care for your child, the athlete at that school, and, and not the coach. So those are three big projects in terms of some public health initiatives that could directly impact your community. And I think that's really important, the point about the athletic trainers. I'm a little concerned, obviously, as we go coming out of this pandemic and coronavirus now with a lot of athletic trainers who have been furloughed and some schools are having to make some budget cuts and the potential for athletic trainers either being cut from schools and that could put certainly athletes more at risk. And if you are involved with your schools and your school boards, I certainly hope that parents and coaches are advocating to keep their athletic trainers on site. Could not agree more. Let's talk about some practical things regarding exertional heat stroke now. How do we recognize when exertional heat stroke may be a concern? What are the common signs and symptoms that someone may experience? The two cardinal signs of recognition of exertional heat stroke are central nervous system dysfunction and extreme hyperthermia at the time of collapse. So let me explain both of those. So central nervous system dysfunction does not mean the person has to be like unconscious or in a coma or completely out of it. It might be just altered consciousness. So for instance, it could be just someone who has irrational behavior. They might become combative. Um, They might just not be thinking properly. They might go back to the wrong huddle. They might work with the wrong group during a practice session. They might be slow to respond. They might not answer your question when asked. Um, So some kind of CNS changes that are just the person is not their normal self. It certainly can go all the way to the extent of complete collapse and unconsciousness. But when you're on site and you see it at the time that it happens, it's usually more mild at first. The second thing was extreme hyperthermia at the time of collapse. And that means their body temperature is likely above 105 at the time of the incident. And that has to be measured on site accurately by your licensed healthcare professional, the athletic trainer who would use a rectal thermometer to measure that because all the other ways that you typically might use at home, things like tympanic, axillary, temporal, oral, those are not accurate when you've been doing intense exercise in the heat. So the combination of the rectal temperature and the CNS dysfunction when people have been struggling during intense exercise in the heat point us in the direction that someone may be suffering exertional heat stroke. And finding out about it quickly and recognizing it quickly is one of the four key components. When we talk about care of heat stroke, there's four big things that you need to be aware of and why your school should have an athletic trainer. And if you're a parent or a coach, you need to advocate for that. And that's because you need to recognize heat stroke quickly, that it's possibly heat stroke. Second, you need to get an accurate temperature. Third, you need to cool the person aggressively on site in a cold water immersion tub. And then fourth, you have to cool first, transport second. That means the athletic trainer will finish cooling the person to under 103 before they transport them to the hospital, even if the ambulance arrives while you're still cooling them. Because you have only 30 minutes, if you really want to kind of guarantee survival based on what we know in the medical literature, you have 30 minutes to get their temp under 104 if you want to assure survivability without complications. Those four are the basic caveats that we try to establish all policies and procedures so that those four items can take place on site. Temperature taking is always a little bit controversial. What is the best way that we should be monitoring temperature in someone with a suspected exertional heat stroke? I mean, it's a really important point to discuss because um, our we've done extensive research to show that the typical ways that you might check your kid's body temperature at home, like tympanic, temporal, oral, axillary, things like that. They are grossly inaccurate when people have been doing intense exercise in the heat. So the only field expedient way to check body temperature in the field is with a rectal temperature. Your licensed medical professional, your athletic trainer is is able to, to do a rectal temperature check. It's an absolutely critical to have that accurate temperature. 
one of the key components of heat stroke care is a concept called cool first transport second. And you can't institute cool first transport second if you don't have an accurate body temperature. So we are making a lot of progress nationally to have cold water immersion tubs at high school settings, having the cool first transport second policy in place and having athletic trainers have a rectal thermometer and, and be able to get that temperature when it's needed. You know, I think that's always a good point when we talk about the rectal temperature, about that being the key. I think the big issue for a lot of people is it's a rectal temperature and they get kind of anxious about the fact of doing that. I'll tell you, you know, when you mentioned the issues with CNS dysfunction for people with exertional heat stroke, one of the cases that I took care of in my fellowship training, there was a cross country race in Nashville very hot day, of course, and the person collapsed right at the finish line. And he clearly had signs of exertional heat stroke. He was starting to ask for his grandmother. His grandmother was nowhere to be found, and she was not at the event. She was He was clearly hallucinating as far as what was going on. And the, the cases that I've had when we've gone to doing the rectal temperature, and, and people were apprehensive about doing it at first, and they did his oral temperature, it was 103. We actually did his rectal temperature. There was no pushback. I've never had anybody have pushback. It's obviously you want to try and do it private if you can, but it's a life-saving measure. So you got to do what you got to do. But his rectal temperature was 106. And so clearly there was the difference there, no question about that. But I've, I've never had anybody like, I think if they truly are an exertional heat stroke, they honestly don't know that you're doing a rectal temperature because they're so out of it. Yeah, that's that's very true. It's just unfortunately, in some high school settings, you get athletic directors and principals and superintendents establishing medical policies. And I'm, I'm constantly telling athletic trainers to work with their team physicians, preferably team physicians that are closely affiliated with AMSSM or ACSM, because they're obviously going to encourage best practices to be followed, and they're going to help institute those kinds of policies. But you brought up a good point. We just did a study last year at the Falmouth Road Race. Falmouth Road Race averages 20 exertional heat strokes per year. It's a race in August. It's a race that's 12 kilometers. And last year, we did a study where tympanic temperatures we assessed at the same exact moment we were doing rectal temperatures upon admission of potential heat stroke patients. And we found over a four degree Fahrenheit difference. So the tympanics were reading around mid 102s, which if you did that in the field, and if an athletic trainer did that at a high school setting, they would think it's a heat exhaustion and not start aggressive cooling. And the actual rectal temperature was high 106s, close to 107 at the time of collapse. And it shows you that obviously that's why a lot of heat stroke patients have died through the years because care has been delayed because people thought it was not as serious as it really was because they used an inaccurate temperature device. Again, I just tell people I, we got to get over the the fear of taking a rectal temperature in someone. It's 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 again, it's we just got to do it and I, and I think I we can all emphasize that over and over and over again, right? I use the analogy that I think your parents and coaches athletic directors would understand is you would never hesitate using an AED on a female athlete because you have to remove their clothing or their bra and have them partially naked just to save their life at that moment. Same, you should never worry about on that very rare circumstance, you have to do a rectal temperature and their butt is exposed for just you know five seconds and then you pull their shorts back up after you put the thermistor in. Both of those are life-saving techniques and you just gotta do what you gotta do in a crisis situation. Absolutely. Now we talked about treating and once we've gotten that temperature established, rapid cooling is the key. What are the most practical ways of doing this for somebody? If the suspected heat stroke and then potentially confirmed heat stroke with the body temperature happens within the confines of a controlled athletic setting, meaning like a football practice where you could have a cold water immersion tub set up prior 
to the practice taking place, or like they might have them at military bases or, you know, situations where a heat stroke would not be surprising. Cold water immersion has by far the fastest cooling rates. You can cool somebody down a degree Celsius every four minutes or five minutes and a degree Fahrenheit about every three minutes. So that means if someone starts at 108, you can have them out of the tub at 103 in just 15 minutes. So if it took you five minutes to do the initial assessment of the athlete and to do the rectal temperature to get some of their equipment off and get them in the tub, takes 15 to 20 minutes to cool them. You can stay under that 30 minute window that I was talking about to get their temp down into the safety zone. So that's why we want to move quickly to assess, get the temperature, get them into the cold water immersion tub. So in a controlled athletic setting, should have a tub half filled up with water under an easy up tent near the practice field, have three or four coolers of ice right next to the tub. And if you do suspect or have a heat stroke, you just dump all the tubs of ice from the coolers into your tub, and then you have your cold water immersion tub ready to go. In certain situations, you might not have a cold water immersion tub set up, whether it be like a day that's not too hot or not your typical summertime practices, or if you're at a cross-country meet in a remote setting like at a park, you could bring a big cooler with you filled with ice, water, towels, and a tarp. And you can use something called the tarp method or burrito method or taco method. And you wrap the person inside that tarp, fill it with ice and water and swish the water back and forth to try to cover as much of the skin surface area as possible. That cooling though is only about 60% as effective as cold water immersion. So you're obviously adding on minutes of cooling. So while it's still super valuable and you should do when you don't have cold water immersion, you should try to set up cold water immersion whenever possible. We're super excited that nearly 20 states in the country mandate cold water immersion tubs at preseason practices or when temperature thresholds cross certain particular demarcations. Obviously, we're going to continue to try to have all states meet that requirement, but obviously it's a lot of massive progress that we're making so far. And that's important. You know, Obviously, we want to get these types of things implemented across the country. Anything we can do, you know, I think people sometimes forget, and we talk about Corey Stringer itself in Minnesota, where he had exertional heat stroke. And some people get the false impression that if you live in a northern state, that this can't happen, but absolutely it can. And so I think we need to make sure that we're not neglecting and just assuming that this is a problem of all the southern states, right? Yeah, it's a fantastic point because two things to consider. Almost all heat strokes happen in the first like four or five days of practices, no matter what you're doing in the whatever it is in the heat. If, if they're going to happen, they're most likely in the first four or five days. Probably has a lot to do with lack of conditioning and heat acclimatization status. Second big factor, they typically happen when it's hotter than normal for you in your local community. So like I mentioned before, Corey Stringer, it was extremely hot in Minnesota. They had a heat wave of a few days near or over 100 degrees, and that was obviously unseasonably warm for them there. So if it's 97 degrees in Maine or Connecticut, that's really hot weather. That wouldn't be extreme in Mississippi or Louisiana, but if you have a really hot day there, something beyond the normal for your local community, that's when we tend to see most of the heat strokes take place. You mentioned we talked a little bit about both temperature and then the cooling as important components of this. We're in a situation where it is something that sneaks up on us and we don't have access to a thermometer. How much should someone threat over getting that temperature? If Obviously, if you just don't have a thermometer available and you have the ability to cool someone and you've ruled out cardiac and other likely conditions and you, someone has collapsed during intense exercise in the heat and you know you use your clinical skills to realize that you, it's likely a heat stroke, obviously I would never want to de- delay cooling. But the problem is, is that a lot of state laws, you know, when, if you're going to institute the cool first transport second and you have those policies set up, often you need the temperature to defend the continued care before you're relinquishing services over to EMS if that's what you've set up as your local policies. 
but obviously if you if you don't have temperature and you 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 really know it's heat stroke obviously you still want to cool them but to make sure it's heat stroke especially i mentioned to you before a lot of the cns dysfunction is not extreme when it first happens in heat stroke especially not as extreme as a lot of people learn back when they were in school they're looking for unconsciousness or coma and often it's much more mild initially we don't want to lose those initial minutes of cooling while the the thing deteriorates in front of us how about just in general athletes? Is there anything in general that may put an athlete more at risk potentially for developing an exertional heat stroke? Any risk factors? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a good question. So I wanted to chat about preventing a heat stroke in the first place because there's two big things we need to consider. One is what can we do to prevent the heat stroke from happening in the first place? And there's a lot we can do. But then second is when if it does happen, what are we going to do to save their life? If you do rectal temperature and cold water immersion within 10 minutes of collapse from heat stroke, survivability has been 100%. So that's the care side of it. But what can we do to prevent it in the first place? So first of all, the biggest factor that enhances exercise heat tolerance, meaning that you do better exercising the heat, is your fitness status. We always tell people to get fit first and heat acclimatize second. Fitness, if that helps you deal with exercising the heat better, we want people who are fit. Second is heat acclimatization. People who've been doing exercise in the heat for seven to 10 days, slowly, progressively ramping up the intensity and duration of exercise in the heat, they're going to do better. That enhances your exercise heat tolerance. Other things like hydration. There's no question that during intense exercise in the heat, if you're hydrated, your body temperature does not climb as rapidly. So that's important. Next is body cooling strategies. Body cooling would mean like when you have a break period, taking your helmet off, putting a cold, wet towel on your head or on your forearms sitting in the shade, having fans, whatever, exercising in the cooler times of the day. There's a lot of things that you can do procedurally, administratively to not have people get as hot. And then another extremely important factor, as you mentioned earlier, wet bulb globe temperature policies. That's just a fancy term for environmental monitoring, monitoring the temperature and humidity where you're practicing. So if it's more extreme weather, you alter your work to rest ratio. So if it's hotter and more humid, you have more breaks that are longer. So that allows athletes more time to hydrate, less time to heat up because there's less practice time and more time to cool down because there's more break time. The, the heat acclimatization, modifying work to rest ratios based on environmental conditions, get people fit, you know, improving their fitness status, thinking about their hydration. And then you have, so that's, that's those are kind of global things for all athletes. Then we have the X factor items, things like, are they on certain medications, ADHD medications or anything that's like kind of amphetamine-like substances, ephedra, things like that will cause a rise in your metabolic rate, which will cause you to heat up faster. Things like some of those substances are also found in supplements. So being aware of the supplements people are taking, the medications, if it's a new medication or if they're increasing their dosage. Very importantly, have they recently had an illness, you know, especially anything that's feverish or they're about or they're getting ill. So are athletes comfortable sharing those kinds of illnesses with their athletic trainers and their coaching staff? because they're going to be at a greater risk. But those are an example of some of the things we can do to try to prevent a heat stroke from happening in the first place. I'm hopeful that with obviously coronavirus still in the mix here, that with screening practices that people are doing, we'll hopefully at least get the illness part of that and measuring temperatures of getting those surprised kids who may actually have a fever and they don't know it, getting them off the playing field and off the practice fields to start off with for this summer. I mean, that's my biggest concern. You mentioned the fitness too. 
of kids who may have been sitting around a lot. And then now we're jumping them back into practices and things as, as a lot of states are starting to open up with high school sports again in the next couple of weeks when it is getting hotter and they may not have been acclimatized to that heat. So I think it's something that we're all going to have to keep our, our eyes uh, open to. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I would invite people to visit uh, ksi.ucon.edu, our website, because we just released an inter-association task force document where we pulled together 10 organizations to release a COVID-19 pandemic return to sport for high school and college athletes. So it's a extensive recommendations to follow in this June, July, August transition back. There's kind of three big things parents and coaches and the athletes themselves should be thinking about. One is the great variability we're going to have in the fitness status of the athletes returning. So we're going to have potentially three to four months of different kind of activity than usual. Some are going to have done no activity. Some are going to have done a ton because they had more time than they've ever had in their life. And you're going to have all of the potentials in between those two extremes. And the thing is, is, you know, a lot of football players, you know, they might have played baseball in the spring or lacrosse or track and field or done football conditioning just in the weight room through the springtime. And now we're going to have people that we just really haven't been around for three to four months. So that's one, the variability of the fitness status. Second is you're going to have some people who had COVID-19, but who have recovered enough to be at practice, but there might be long-term complications, whether they be cardiovascular or pulmonary or other things that might limit their ability to exercise in the heat. We just don't completely understand that right now. And then third, let's face it, you're going to have some athletes who currently have COVID-19 who are out at practice, who have not had extensive signs and symptoms to report, but they might have complications to practicing in the heat because doing intense exercise, you know, might exacerbate, you know, them having COVID-19 and unbeknownst to you, they might be practicing in front of you with the condition and they might struggle. And an athlete who's you know, normally been amazing before might have a few days of struggling and you need to just be aware of that potential. I think that's the most important probably point of why we really need to emphasize having athletic trainers on site for this summer for these high school kids, having someone who could recognize things and be able to react to them quickly. I agree. I, I think it's probably overstating the obvious here, but I personally would not allow high school sports to take place, especially the summer, if there was not an athletic trainer there, especially during football practices. The likelihood of problems, I think, is is so much higher this summer because of the variability in fitness status and a lot of other complicating issues. Just unfortunately, as an example, an athlete just passed away yesterday in Mississippi. We don't know the causes yet, but he was in a football practice conditioning session. I think you're just going to see a very unique summer. I would tell any coach listening to your podcast to be more flexible this summer. Don't bully, antagonize, or like yell at any kid who seems to be struggling. Give them a chance to get fit. Put people in individualized groups or small groups with people with similar fitness status. Be really cautious in the first two to three weeks that they're back to you in these conditioning sessions and the early practice sessions. Agree 100% with you on that one, Doug. I wanted to touch a little bit more. You mentioned, and I think this is more for clarification for our listeners, you know, you and I are very familiar with what we call the wet bulb globe temperature, but for a lot of coaches and parents, when they think about heat and measuring temperature, is it appropriate to be exercising outside and do we need to modify our practices? A lot of people still think of heat index and rely on heat index. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and why they're really important for helping us judge when we should be practicing and when we shouldn't? Absolutely. And I'm happy you asked that. You know, the, the kind of the three levels of, you know, understanding environmental conditions. One is just knowing the temperature outside. And that's something like you wake up in the morning, you know, on the TV station, the weatherman, the radio, 
Alexa tells you the temperature or, or Siri or Google. That's just the temperature. A step up from just the temperature is the heat index because now it brings into the temperature and the humidity. And then one step up from that is what we call the WBGT or the wet bulb globe temperature. And now that takes into account temperature, humidity, and the direct radiant heat effect of the sun, which is important because if it's a full cloud day, it's going to be much less extreme versus a full Sunday, especially in the afternoon when that full sun has been able to, for instance, heat up the turf football field you're practicing on or heat up the eight lane black track that's been absorbing heat all day. Those are extremely important considerations. And that additional piece of information that a WBGT provides just gives us a a more degree of accuracy when making the work to rest modifications based on the environmental conditions. How about we talk a little bit about how people are, or how various states are doing around the country with dealing with heat illness. I know that there's variability around there. I know you've worked tirelessly to try and get us up to some better standards around the country. Anything you think that we can be doing better? I know you talked about your program where we're going to be, you're going to be going around the states and trying to help come up with some policies and procedures. And I think that's going to be fantastic. And I'm looking forward to that when you get uh, to us in Missouri. But anything that we can be improving upon or areas that you think we really need to focus on? Certainly some of the model states out there that have probably been the most proactive when it comes to heat policies would be Georgia and New Jersey would be the two that come to mind. But there'd be four things that I would want you to think about in Missouri and just you know decide if you have these things in place. One would be the heat acclimatization standards, and that's the phasing in of activity over time during the first couple of weeks. Second would be wet bulb globe temperature policies, you know, requiring every high school to have your WBGT monitor on site not using local weather services because those are not accurate for what the real conditions are on the field itself. Third would be requiring cold water immersion tubs when the WBGT is over certain thresholds where the risk of heat stroke is, is higher. And then fourth would be instituting the cool first transport second policy. So those four things would be things I would encourage your communities and your state high school athletic association to really assess if you have those. I know you have some of those already or you're working towards some of those if you're not, then think about how you can potentially advocate for for moving those forward faster, you know, to just think about how those athletes could be protected a little bit more in the heat. Absolutely. I appreciate those comments. As we wrap up, any parting comments that you have for our listeners, Doug? Yeah, I mean, one big thing I, I think people lose sight of is, is, is the healthcare disparities that exist. When we're returning from this COVID-19 right now, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, some of the more affluent communities are more likely to have athletic trainers and they're have, they'll have been more likely to have individualized training sessions because their families could afford it, probably less likely to have lost jobs and had more time to work on fitness versus some of the lower socioeconomic standing situations in schools and high schools and school districts. They're much less likely to have athletic trainers, less likely to have had services where they, you know, could meet with coaches or strength and conditioning sessions or have Zoom calls or kind of keep up with things for the fitness status of their athletes. So I I think we have to be especially cautious in situations where some of these people are coming back and really didn't have access to to advice and guidance related to fitness and also are, are much less likely to have that licensed medical professional on site to prevent problems in the first place and to treat them if they take place. Appreciate those timely comments and certainly something that we all need to be thinking about how we can lift up others and making sure that we're all on a level playing field, especially when it comes to the health of our athletes. Agreed. I'd love to thank Dr. Casa for his expertise today. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at HYAPod. 
We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast streaming service so you won't miss our latest episodes. Please leave us feedback as it does help us to spread the word about our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think you all will have some valuable information to take back to your schools and certainly for coaches to apply. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.